Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Getting to Better Together, which is sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership of the University of the Sunshine Coast. And I'm your host, Richard Borden. Before proceeding, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. Well, the end of 2021 is almost upon us, and that means that it's time for some reflection on what we've been doing over the past year. It's not my intention here to provide a synopsis of all that we've covered in the 20 or so episodes that we've published so far. They're all there on whichever site you're using to access this series. But I certainly do invite each one of you to reflect on the many matters that we've covered within our themes of getting to better together. These have covered a wide range of topics, after all, from ethics to politics, from worldviews to personal transformations, from the past to the future, from big business to local government, from healthy eating and regenerative farming to the role of universities and society, from outdoor education to education for sustainable development, and much more besides. This diversity, which we've presented without any apparent sequencing, gives rise to key questions about what it is that we really are trying to do with this podcast series and why we're doing it. Why is a unit within a university hosting a seemingly random series of public conversations on air, as it were? This activity would seem to contrast with the long-standing and and vital academic conventions uh, of presenting orderly public lecture series or short courses of study developed by experts in the field which of course is our teaching tradition. Or on the other hand, of reporting on the findings from specific scientific inquiries or technological innovations and developments by subject specialists, which is our researching function. The rationale for our current endeavours is in response to a powerful assertion from a distinguished American scholar almost exactly a quarter of a century ago. Universities, argued Ernest Boyer, the then president of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, should become much more directly involved with society in seeking answers to the most pressing social, civic, economic and moral problems of the day. In his words. In this context, academics should engage directly and frequently with the rest of society, not as experts in restricted areas of science or the humanities like philosophy or history or English, but as thoughtful and committed citizens themselves, albeit with specialised knowledge, in the shared pursuit of betterment, for everyone, of course, has some level or another of specialised knowledge. The very first commitment in this regard would be to the development of what Boyer saw as a synthesis of two cultures, the academic with what might be referred to as the public or the citizenry. The quest is for a common discourse, a common language, for action from two typically quite different ways of knowing and valuing. The aim is to learn to talk together with each other, rather than having one cohort talking to or at or inquiring into the other. Learning to trust each other in the search for shared understandings of complex issues. So what have we been trying to do with these podcasts? Well, we've tried to raise critical issues and to encourage conversations and discussions within this ethos of cross-cultural engagement with a shared commitment to getting to better. I hope Our hope has been that by raising these issues in these podcasts, 
that we've led to conversations amongst you all. One of the things that we seek in the future series from next year is further feedback where we would like to have more dialogue with those who listen to us. There are three key questions at the base of what we're trying to do in relation to the raising of the issues. So what are the most pressing issues of the day? What constitutes improvements to the situations that they present? And who makes all of the decisions and on what grounds? So what, in the first place, have our podcast conversations revealed with respect to the nature and significance of the most pressing issues of the day? I'm sure I'd find little disagreement about which are the most pressing issues of the day, or indeed those leading into tomorrow. COVID-19 pandemic is most certainly a primary candidate, with the devastation that it's causing while climate change and global warming continue to emerge as potential crises as the future unfolds. And meanwhile, there are some very disturbing indications that democratic forms of governance across the world are in decline, in some cases seriously. Perhaps not surprisingly, all three of these phenomena are interconnected, whilst they also share a number of common characteristics. In the first place, in contrast to Boyer's simple specific problems to solve, these are complex, messy, uncertain affairs, where the best we can ever do is to seek degrees of betterment rather than solutions to problems, rather than finding silver bullets, as it were, where everything is suddenly cured. The situation with the messiness of it all is where reduction to simple issues distracts from the true task at hand, which is dealing with the ambiguities and the uncertainties and the complexities. For each of these phenomena have natural, social, political, economic, cultural and technological features all mixed up together. Bruno Latour, the French philosopher, says these are really imbroglios where nature and culture get churned up every day. Furthermore, they're all truly global, both in their scale and the level and type of their impacts. They demand genuine international attention and therefore truly cross-cultural collaborations. Let's just take the case of COVID-19 pandemic for a moment. It might have started out as an infection in one human being who had been exposed to the virus through contact with wildlife or products from wildlife in one form or another. Yet in just a couple of years, it has come to paralyse entire nations. It's even posed severe threats to the socio-economic and political order of the entire world. The impacts that this disease has had on public health alone are staggering in their global scale. Over 265 million confirmed cases worldwide, plus at least as many more that have not been confirmed through lack of testing or through lack of notification. There have been more than 5 million deaths, nearly 800,000 in the United States alone. Meanwhile, the social as well as the economic costs are truly incalculable. But the good news is that the situation is indeed getting better. And engagement and collaboration between governments, institutions and the public at large have very much to do with these circumstances. By and large, citizens across the world have been amazingly compliant they followed scientifically-based recommendations like masking, social distancing, testing, isolating, avoiding crowds, learning to communicate electronically, and so on. And governments have responded 
by providing economic support where otherwise crises would erupt, as it were. Yes, it has been difficult. Of course it's been difficult because the pandemic is a virus which is very active. It doesn't mean to be, it just is. It mutates very rapidly. Paradoxically in this situation, the media, especially in its social network versions, has become at once heroic and villainous. On the one hand, it's been a force for good by bringing verifiable information and data to universal attention. It has given cause for people to think about what scientific knowledge is, what information is, what can be trusted. It's also, of course, a force for potential bad, on the other hand, because it spreads disinformation, misinformation, malinformation, so-called alternative facts, conspiracy theories, it's encouraged denialism, and even downright lies. While these tensions of difference between the forces of good and bad, they characterise the situation even today, there's a very clear evidence that we are indeed getting to better, essentially through acting together on shared beliefs and assumptions with respect to COVID-19 in all of its complexity. Not that collective action on shared beliefs is always as one would expect or wish it to be. As we have continually stressed throughout this series, different people hold to different beliefs, and they are prepared to challenge the beliefs of others. COVID-related public demonstrations are occurring in a significant number of cities and towns across the world, even as I speak. And these are often in conflict with each other, and all too often, very regrettably, they lead to violence. They lead to clashes of law and order. Anti-vaxxers are clashing with pro-vaxxers. Anti-supporters of government mandates are clashing with those who support the idea. Pro- and anti-advocates for alternative strategies and remedies are fighting with each other, and so on. But, as the process of engagement insists, all of these voices deserve to be heard. Well, of course, violence is condemned. The basic notion here is that the more we are exposed to different views of the world, different opinions, different values, to different ways of knowing and knowledge, to different ideologies and views on the roles of governments and so on, the more likely we are to question the adequacy of our own beliefs and assumptions as well as those of others. In other words, we come to question whether when we disagree with somebody, that is in part to do with the fact that we have quite different views. And therefore, to come to some consensus with someone with whom we apparently disagree, the key is to try and understand a third ground, a third place where we might go. Conflict, as a Chilean neurobiologist once said, is mutual negation. The only way forward is to go somewhere new, as it were. Well, such appreciation of different world's views is obvious the more likely we are collectively to come to common understandings and to reach agreements on betterment, even if it is the third way, so to speak. And evidence does suggest that this is where we are heading with regard to the pandemic. We are getting to better together, or at least we're getting to better ways of getting to better. This, of course, is not without considerable reservations, reluctance, scepticism, and even resistance on our part as humans, armed as we are with only very incomplete knowledge, 
about many aspects of the situation and were holding to a host of different worldview, beliefs and assumptions and opinions between us. But rates of vaccination are telling in this regard of getting to better. The World Health Organization has been issuing weekly pandemic statistics since January 2020. So far, over those two two years almost, there have been four peaks. The first one was in mid-December in 2020, with 5 million weekly cases and 110,000 deaths. In early May of this year, the number of weekly cases increased from 5 to 6 million, but the death rate declined from 110,000 to 95,000 a week. In mid-August of this year, the number of cases dropped from 6 million to 4.5 million, and deaths also declined to 70,000 deaths a week. Only last week, a peak of 4 million cases occurred with 50,000 deaths. The duration of hospital stays has declined very dramatically. The number of people now that have to go into the intensive care units has declined significantly and dramatically a significantly high proportion of these are non-vaccinated people. So over those four peaks we've seen the decline from death rates of 2.2% down from one7 right down now currently to 1.25%. This, of course, is still far too high, but nevertheless is indication that we are getting to better by being and acting together as responsible citizens. Let's turn now to an even greater conundrum. What to do about our warming planet and about the changes to the climate that this is triggering. If we think that COVID-19 is complex, then climate change presents us with challenges that are hugely amplified on the scale of complexity. Also, on the severity and the range of its impacts and its duration and its persistence. We humans have been the victims of a virus from the wilds of nature for just a couple of years, and its impacts have really been confined to us alone and to our socio-economic environments. In contrast, through our human activities, we've been essentially victimising all of the rest of nature for millennia, and most especially over the past couple of hundred years or so, as we have pursued industrialization in the name of development and progress. The extent of the impacts of these activities have reached such a level that the integrity of both the entire planet itself and of its atmosphere are now at risk. Ironically and tragically, The prolonged insults that we've been directing to our biophysical environment are all coming back to bite us. And there's no better example to illustrate this than the changes that we have been wreaking to the atmosphere of the planet through our continued emissions of the so-called greenhouse gases, with carbon dioxide as the most prominent, but others like methane also very significant. The accumulation of these gases in the atmosphere has resulted in mean global temperatures that are 1.1 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and heading towards 1.5 degrees and upwards. At this level, as a report from the IPCC released in August observed, there would be increased risks to health, livelihoods, food security, water supply, human security and economic growth. Extreme weather events, rainfall patterns, heat waves, fires, glacier melts, 
Sea level rises, species extinctions, starvation, tolerance levels of agriculture and human health exceeded, and finally law and order collapse. And climate change is already affecting every region on Earth in multiple ways and asymmetrically, and these will accelerate with additional warming. The report is a reality check, said the co-chair of that IPCC working group. The most appropriate focus on our emerging circumstances might not be getting to better together, but rather on not getting to worse. So what to do? Fast forward from August to November and the 26th meeting of the Conference of Parties, the COP, in Glasgow, with its brief to rebuild confidence that global collective action can solve humanity's greatest challenges. The two central tasks. Governments and other actors must be determined to dramatically cut greenhouse gas emissions in this decade. They must also be prepared to very seriously address the climate impacts being experienced across the globe. Did COP26 succeed? Well, opinions are divided, although there is a general sense that the outcomes were better than most had anticipated. Criticism is it didn't go far enough but at least there are indications that we are getting to better ways of getting to better. Before the Glasgow meeting started, a paper from the World Resources Institute argued that success would be based on the response to four critical questions. Would countries deliver deep 2030 emission cuts and agree to a process to keep the 1.5 degree coal goal alive? Not nearly enough, but yes, there were indications that this would happen. Second question was, will developing countries get the finance and support that they need? Well, again, there are indications that this is being taken seriously and the growth of an adaptation fund is looking good. Question three, will countries and corporations commit to breakthrough revolutions to drive systems change? And there was strong support in Glasgow. And finally, will negotiations and negotiators agree to rules that maintain the integrity and ambition of the so-called 2015 Paris Accord. It was concluded that work still needs to be done and that discussions were beginning again to talk about the notion of carbon tax. The conclusions after this meeting of the World Resource Institute were in a time marked by uncertainty, mistrust and escalating climate impacts. COP26 has affirmed just how essential collective global action is to address the climate crisis. Togetherness. While we are not yet on track, the progress made over the last year and at the Climate Summit offered bright spots in a strong foundation to build on. For the first time, countries agreed to take action on fossil fuels, for instance, while it was encouraging to see China and the United States, the world's two biggest sources of greenhouse gases, signalling their intention to work together to drive down emissions. Well, of course, ambitious words and promises are good, but one must ultimately judge governments by their actions, and these actions on near-term targets so far fall well short of what's needed. And it is indeed inconsistent with most of the net zero targets that are on the table. 
Well, the emphasis of COP26 was on government actions. When we talk of nations, of course, we talk of ourselves. We, the citizens, we need to take actions. And it was a very considerable interest to note that those officials within the conference halls were far outnumbered by those citizens on the streets of Glasgow protesting the inactions and inadequacies of government representatives within. Democracy at work. In that vein, it is disappointing to note that a recent report noted that at least during 2020, and the survey hasn't been conducted so far this year, that the commitment to democracy by nations across the world is declining. This is true in Southeast Asia, in Asia uh, generally, in certain parts of Africa and Latin America, and most disappointingly of all, in the United States of America and in Europe. Well, reducing emissions of greenhouse gases is a vital mitigating factor in keeping us below or at 1.5 degrees Celsius. There is a host of other issues that we need to address as citizens. How should we be living our lives to assure a future that is sustainable? And this emphasis on should or ought to brings to my mind the three crucial questions posed by Immanuel Kant, the great 19th century German philosopher, which I paraphrase. What can we know? What should we do? For what can we hope? Hope, I believe, is nurtured by what we can come to know, as it informs what we then should do. And for me, that provides a most appropriate thought to leave you with, as 2021 is soon to leave us. This is a fundamental ethos, if you will, or ethical theme that underpins our entire podcast mini-series, Getting to Better together. Hope is vital under these circumstances, and it is hope that I want to encourage. Hope that I want to leave us all with, with the indicators that I have just given, that things are indeed getting better. It remains for me to thank all of those of who have engaged with me in the production of this series of podcasts, my guests, you, my listeners, and two very special people, Tammy, the director of SIDSL, our sponsor, and my wonderful colleague Nastaran, who makes it all happen. I look forward very much to presenting our 2022 episodes, and in preparation for that, could I ask three favours of you? Firstly, to subscribe to this series using Spotify or Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, whichever site you use. Secondly, to tell any friends about us and to encourage them to subscribe. And thirdly, to let us know how we can improve what we are doing. Please write to me, feel free to write to me, at rborden, B-A-W-D-E-N, at usc.edu.au. And there, for the last time this year, I will leave you. I wish you all a very happy Christmas and a prosperous New Year. Goodbye from me and thank you for listening.